you're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Putting God First, the principle of putting God first runs throughout Scripture. What better way can we express this than by bringing our material wealth to Him? We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, see our future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Okay, welcome to week two of uh, Financial Freedom. Just to a brief uh, introduction and recap, we'll pray and then um, we'll embark on this evening's teaching. Last week we discovered, or perhaps uh, I just reminded you and ourselves, about God, the very character of God, and that he is a giver and not a getter. We looked at the fact that he gave, he's given everything that he has away. He created this beautiful planet, and we read there in Genesis, he gave it all to Adam and Eve, the entirety of it, everything breathing on it, all life, everything he gave it over to them. We discovered that he gave his glory to his son, Christ. He gave his son to us, and he gave all of his creation, the people who have put their faith and trust, the people who have believed in God, he's given them, it says, to Jesus. We saw that humankind are the pinnacle of God's creation, that after he made everything, finally he makes man. It says he made him just a little bit lower than God or the heavenly beings. To bask in his love, to reflect his glory, through our lives to the world. So we reflect God to the world. So if God then is a giver and not a getter, we too must be givers. We must reflect God. People must see God, as it were, through our lives. But then we uh, discovered that due to the fall, everything changed. We became greedy, covetous, uh, thieving, unequal, and unjust. God's uh, creation, his wonderful creation, sin affected it so deeply, every part of it. Then we saw that salvation makes it possible for us to return to what I would call our first estate, the way that God had always intended us to be. I say he made it possible because he doesn't make us or force us to go back to that. He invites us and gives us the wherewithal, the possibility to return to what we once were created to be. To be generous givers like God. To be like that, we require several things in our lives. We need to pursue righteousness and not money. The world, many, are in the pursuit of wealth or riches or money, uh, and when it's not there, their lives are devastated. They become so frustrated and angry with things and, and down. Our pursuit is not for money, it's for righteousness. Money, we saw, is like a spirit that is over us, and we have to break its control, its power, over our lives. 
we then have to refuse to be enslaved again. Sometimes we can find ourselves free of something, only over the years we become ensnarled again, drawn back by it. We need to break ourselves free of it, walking liberty and maintain that liberty. In our first lesson this evening, what I want to look at is the fact that we should put God first, always put God first in everything. And then after the break, I'm going to look at that uh, subject of tithing. It could be a little bit uh, something that you haven't heard before, or you might differ, or it might be quite different from what you would normally hear in your own churches. I think to some extent churches manipulate people a little bit with this teaching. Anyway, I'm going to give you my take on it and, uh, and you can listen through and then make your own opinion, which you must do with all scriptures. In the end, you must, con you must come to your own conclusion of what the scripture means and says to you. Let's pray then before we look at this evening's lessons. Heavenly Father, we just thank you uh, for your great love for us. Your desire to lead us into all truth your desire to uh, cause us to see you uh, in a fuller, richer way. And so as we give ourselves to listening and to studying your word, Lord, we pray you'll reveal yourself to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. We're going to look at putting God first. It's a principle that is throughout Scripture. You wouldn't think it needed to be explained. If God is who he claims to be. And of course, he is the creator of all things. He's above and beyond everything. We must consider him as first in every way. We can't have anything that comes before him or we place in front of him. He is first and everything else fits around God. Several scriptures I'll just point you to here. Exodus 32 and 26, it says, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 18.4 says, you are to give them, that is the priests, the first fruits of your grain. 1 Kings 17.13 says this, but first make a small cake of bread for me. That's Elijah, you might remember that story. Matthew 6 and 33, coming into the New Testament, he says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And 2 Corinthians 8 and 5, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. The key word is obvious. It's first. God is first. God is continually first in all areas of our life. So if you have a decision to make, you first go to God. You don't think all around it, you go there first. If you're poorly or a relative or a friend of yours is poorly, first you go to God. Yes, call the doctor, yes, talk to others, but first go to God. Always first go to God. The Word of God says if we put anything else before him, that is idolatry. And definitely if we put greed before God, Scripture actually says we're idolatrous. We have removed God from that primary position and put something else in its place. This is a, a personal thing for me. I, I don't like when I see a calendar 
uh, or, or in my diary, it starts the week on a Monday. I don't like that. Uh, I, think Mon I think Monday's the second day. To me, Sunday is the first day. Why? Because it's the day that's dedicated to God. So we don't give God the last day of the week. We give him the first day of the week. It should be, well, in my mind. I won't fall out with too many people about this one. But just in my thinking, even if ever I write it, I write Sunday is the first day. And to me, the first thing we do on the first day of the week is go to church. We give God those primary hours. We think this is the first thing I do before I do anything else all week. I go to God and I present myself and I give him worship. I give him the first, as it were, the first portion of everything. The first thing we do then with our money if we have money, whether we receive it on a weekly or a monthly basis or however we get it from the government or uh, from our employment or whatever it is, from pensions or whatever, we set aside a sum of it for God. Now, you might have it fixed in your mind what that set of sum should be and that's where the, our whole discussion on the tithe is going to come in in a minute. Whether it's a tithe or it's not a tithe, we will look at that and then you make your own decision. But the idea is before you do anything with your money, you set aside a portion for God. And you're thinking, you go, well, we'll give God this first, then we'll work everything else out. It's awful to do everything else and then look at what's left and then say, well, we'll give this to God. Because what you've done, you've put everyone else before God. Even when I'm looking at, uh, you know, a budget or something, and I know I've got to pay my taxes, I always put that second. <laughs> Silly thing with me again. I put, I put what I want to give to God first and realise the other things always come second, third and fourth. So when we get in this mindset of doing this, let it affect the whole of your life and the whole of your thinking. Paul is very much in agreement with us in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian church to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. So Paul's attitude was this first day, the first thing we do when we gather together is we put this sum of money aside. We honour the Lord with this. A simple and practical, spiritual and scriptural way of putting God first with our money is, as Paul des describes here, is to set a sum of money aside. When we are paid, as like I said, weekly or monthly, or when we sit down at the beginning of the year and we make a budget, try and make this the first thought. What, what do I want to give to God? What do I want to invest in the kingdom? You might give it through the church tithe or the church offering. You might give it to missionaries. You might have other ways of, of investing your money in the kingdom. I don't believe there are hard and fast rules, personally, but we set a sum of money aside. As I looked at this whole question of the tithe, and we'll do uh, look at it a little bit deeper in the second part of this evening, we see that in the Old Testament, two characters we're going to look at this evening, they decided to set 
a sum of money aside, and both of them decided on this tenth. There's no indication that God told them to pay a tenth or to give a tenth. As you read it, it came out of their own decision. Now, you can surmise that God had spoken to them, but we don't know, and he never said it. So these two characters, their decision to give a tenth, it seemed to come from their own mind. It's what they had decided to give. Later, when God sends the law through Moses, he takes this which these two characters had decided to give, and he makes it part of the law. And then I believe as we come into the New Testament, what he does, he reverts back to what it was before the law, where we could decide what it is, what we gave. Anyway, so you know where I'm coming from now, but we'll build towards that picture. Who are these two characters then I can direct you to? The first one is Abraham. The principle of tithing, giving one-tenth to the Lord, goes all the way back to Abraham. Abraham uh, lived probably four or five hundred years before Moses was ever on the scene, before there was ever the laws that God gave to Israel, before Israel as a nation ever existed. And we find that Abraham, he chose to give one-tenth of his spoils. He, was, uh, he went to war, remember, to, uh, to help his nephew Lot, and uh, in this war, he obviously got, he won the war along with uh, others that he was fighting with and, and gained all these spoils. And then we find that he was met after the war uh, by Melchizedek, who's described as the king of Salem, God's representative on the earth. And this is what it says in Genesis 14, 18 to 20. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then he goes on to say, Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. He was being honoured, by the representative of God as they broke bread and drank wine together and they were giving thanks to God and as a sign of his respect and to honour God he just took a tenth of all the, the spoils that he had and he handed them over to the priest. He was God's representative. We don't know what Melchizedek done with that. It's like we take some money and we give it to the church and we, ex we don't give it to anybody precisely, but we expect that person to invest whatever that was in whatever he would feel the Lord would direct him to do with it. There's no indication that Abraham ever did this again. There was no indication that he ever done it before. We don't know this. He might have only done this on one occasion. I tend to think not, though. We know that God made him very rich. It says in Genesis 13 and 2, Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. 
So I just draw the conclusion that if he had done it on this occasion, where he had gained all these spoils of war, and in life God was blessing him and blessing him with wealth and prosperity, I can't imagine that he would say, oh, well, this is all mine. It doesn't follow through. If he gave it after he received the spoils, he probably continued giving it. Giving it to, I presume, Melchizedek, God's representative. We have to give it to, to God's representative. We can look into that as well a little bit later. And Romans 4, if we read through that, it talks a lot about our relationship with Abraham. It says this, it teaches us that Abraham is our father. He's only our father when we walk in the footsteps of his faith. So I presume that he gave his money in faith to God. And we, if we want to be children of God, children of Abraham in that sense, and walk by faith, we, we follow him. We do what Abraham would have done. The second person we need to look at regarding the tithe, again happened way before uh, the law ever came into being, was uh, to look at um, Abraham's uh, grandson. This is Jacob. It's the second example, really, that we have of tithing. It's, it's quite different in a way. Jacob, you might remember from the story, became a refugee. He tried to trick his brother, didn't he, out of the birthright, and he went and deceived his father. And as a result of this, he, he wasn't driven from the home, but he ran in fear of his life. And so running from... Uh, Isaac and Esau, it says the only thing he left within his hand was a staff. And this is it. And he gets to a place called Bethel. And of course, he, he seems quite distant from God, as though God's, he doesn't appreciate the presence of God. He's a tricky old twister, isn't he, if we read his, his, his story. He, he, was, he, he had a heart for the things of God, and yet he was often twisting and negotiating and, and wriggling out of things and, and working things for his own advantage. If you read his story, that, that's the conclusion I come to anyway. So he sets out and uh, he, 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 he sets up this place to sleep this night, a place called Bethel, or he calls it Bethel. Uh, it means where God is, the meeting place for God. And, and during the night, he, he has a dream. But this is what he says later after the dream the next day. It's found in Genesis 28, 20 to 22. Then Jacob, he made a vow saying, now I've never heard of such a cheeky vow really, uh, such a forward attitude he's got. Listen to what he says. He says, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. Oh, and if he doesn't, he won't be your God. Well, I think it's, it's up to God to decide if he's going to be someone's God or not. Anyway, so there's this arrogantness about this, uh, this young man, Jacob. He said, this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, hence the name Bethel. And of all that you give me, he said, 
I'll give you back a tenth. How gracious of him. What a wonderful man he is, this Jacobs. Such a twister, really, in the whole of his, his way of doing things. And yet, you know, God loved him. It says, it says he hated Esau, but he loved this man, Jacob. Not, I don't think he loved all these twisty ways in him and uh, you know, how he was manoeuvring things, but there was something in his heart that he was really passionate about God. And sometimes we can get things terribly wrong, but what God is looking at, not often what we get right and wrong all the time, but are we passionate for God? He would rather us passionate and get some stuff wrong now and again than just be indifferent and do nothing. So I'm all for passion in people and not, not for picking up on their faults. I'd rather someone passionate and get, get half the things right and half them wrong than somebody who does absolutely nothing at all. It appears to be Jacob's decision to how much he gives. Now, being Abraham's grandson, I, I could well believe that Abraham has spoken to Jacob about his life and he knows about stories because the Jews were very good at passing stories down. And so I'm sure he would have heard these stories. So perhaps for, for Jacob, it wasn't sort of an idea that he had, but it was definitely not a directive from the Lord. In fact, he is the one who gives God the directive. I'm going to give you this and, and you're going to bless me. It, it seems almost he's turned the tables on God. For Jacob, though, this was the basis of his relationship with God. I'll give you this. Well, you bless me and I'll give you 10% of what... It, that was the basis of their relationship. Noticed in what he asked for, he only asked for his needs to be met. He didn't ask to be wealthy. If God will be with me and will watch over me and on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house. He wasn't looking to be wealthy and rich. He said, Lord, just look after me. The basis of what I need is food and clothing. I'm not looking for anything else, really. And when I return to my father's house, so he believed that he would, then he would survive and God would keep him. God provided his needs and in return he gave him, Jacob gave him a tenth. Because he says of, of all that you give me, you get the impression with this one, this wasn't a one-off thing that like Abraham did, it was a continual process. He couldn't say, well, I'll store it all up for the end, then 40 years later I'll give you a tenth. I'm sure he was giving it. Who was he giving it to? And when was he giving it? Well, we, we know nothing of what it is here. But I believe he gave it to the priest who was after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we don't know who that was because there were probably... Uh, a line of priests after the order of Melchizedek. Again, another mystery that we could talk about and, and argue about and discuss about, but I believe there was always a priest after the order of Melchizedek all the way through, well, up to the Levitical priesthood, and then it probably or possibly finished, and then, of course, Jesus took over after the priesthood had finished. So my thought is that he probably would seek out the priest after the order of Melchizedek and make sure he got a tenth 
of what God was blessing him with. Then we read in Genesis chapter 32, this is 20 years after he made this promise or entered into this um, relationship, this deal with God. Jacob returns, it says, with great wealth and a very large family. We can conclude, can we, that this was a result of his faithfulness in tithing? You wouldn't be wrong in drawing such conclusions. He makes a promise to God, you bless me and I'll do this. And the next thing we know, after 20 years of, of living, a quite a nomadic way of living, he has this tremendous wealth and enormous family. And we are to conclude it's because he had been faithful and done what he said he would do with God. The law comes eventually, doesn't it, with Moses? And it seems that these two characters who existed before the law, they almost set a precedent. Now, if you said, oh, I'm sure that God had told them before that they were to give a tithe, I'm not going to argue with you, quite possibly. Scripture doesn't say that, whether that was the case or not, or whether because of the precedent that they set up, God says, seems good to me as well, we'll just incorporate this into the law. So when God enters into a covenant with the nation of Israel, part of the covenant setting up was to give them a law. In fact, the law was the covenant. And part of the covenant agreement, part of the law that they had, was that the first 10% of whatever they received wasn't theirs. It was God's. And so to take it for yourself was to steal from God. Because when the law came, he said, well, it's actually mine. It's not your decision whether you're going to give it to me. You've actually got to give it to me. I, I, I make it mine. I like to think because Abraham was God's friend, God took the idea from Abraham. I don't know. I'm just a bit strange like that sometimes. But, but yeah, so I think God wants to include us, listen to us, walk with us. And uh, yeah, and maybe we could even suggest some ideas. So he said, this tenth that belongs to me, it becomes holy because it's mine. It's sacred. And you mustn't do anything with that. In the uh, book of Leviticus, we read this in uh, Leviticus 27, 30 and 32. He said this, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. If a man redeems any of his tithes, that means holds it back and doesn't give what is God's to him, he must add one-fifth of the value to it. So God wanted it with interest if you took it from him. The entire tithe of the herds and flocks every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. So that's where we get the whole concept, the idea, putting God first and how the tithe comes into that whole way of thinking. After the break, I want to teach about what uh, the Bible says about the tithe, its application a little bit in the New Testament. Uh, and in the following lesson, that's our first lesson, next week, what has changed so dramatically 
in respect of tithing under the new covenant. I do believe a lot of ministries love to teach the old covenant for the very reason it puts a legal pressure on us and we can all subject ourselves to legalism. We're very prone to doing that. Put a bit of legalistic pressure on us just to make sure the money keeps flowing. That, that's my uh, somewhat cynical attitude about it. But I could be wrong anyway. But we'll examine it and we'll, uh, we'll see what the Word of God says together. Thank you. In this lesson, we're going to uh, extend our understanding on the tithe, the tithe that we've already seen was established uh, in the Old Testament. I'd just like to say a couple of things before we look into that. I'd just, I just say that God never changes. He cannot change. So when we read things in the Old Testament and we think that he's changed in the New, it's not so much that he's changed. Sometimes his methodology has changed, but God is the same. He, he has to be the same. He's changeless and the principles carry through, but sometimes their application changes. In the Old Testament, the law was given so that the nation of Israel, and remember this, that the law was given to a nation, it was given to the nation of Israel, that they would know what God expected of them. He knew all along they could never fulfill the law, but it was still what he expects, and he still expects the same things today because he can't change. In the Old Testament, those who love God, they didn't think, oh, I need to follow the law. They willingly gave to God. They were generous. When you read about David and the others whose hearts were passionate for God, they didn't think, oh, I better pay my tithes. They just, just gave and gave and gave. And I would believe that many, many Old Testament saints, they knew something of the grace of God and they willingly gave. They didn't see themselves under law, as it were. So the nation of Israel then were given laws. They formed their covenant with God, which they had a duty, a bound duty to keep. He gave them, entered into a covenant with them. The covenants were the laws and the laws they had to keep. That's the Old Testament picture. In the new covenant, and we come under the new covenant terms, not the Old Testament uh, nation of Israel covenant terms, in the New Covenant, God promises to meet his people's needs and much more if we are generous with what he has given us. So there still exists a covenant and it's, it's the same in principle, but it's changed. They were almost commanded to give. In the New Covenant, we... God expects us to give and to be generous in our giving, but it's operated by grace. And, and what he says is, because grace has replaced law, all compulsion to give has been removed. So you're not compelled to give. You're not under law to give. But the idea is, because of God's grace in your life and your love for God, giving is not a problem. So he, he takes us 
under the compulsion of law, brings us into this wonderful place of liberty, but you see, in a sense, nothing has changed. God is a gracious giver, and we reflect him. In the Old Testament, if we were mean and stingy, we would feel the compulsion of law to do it. In the New Testament, we're not under compulsion, and so Christians are free to give or not, not give. But because of the covenant, he said, listen, if you give generously, I will look after you really well. So in a sense, nothing changes, but everything changes. And I think we need to be honest with what scripture teaches here. Next week, we're going to talk a lot about the grace of giving, the grace of God to give. But this week, I want to teach on how the principles of the tithes carries through from the Old to the New Testament. Is there anything else that carries through apart from the general principle that God expects us to be generous and to give? Is there more? Jesus is our high priest. It says this in Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. See, we are to see that Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He writes this, Jesus, who went before us, has entered there on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we've got to add this unto the whole story of giving and being generous. We can follow the story through, you see. We've had Abraham, who we looked at, and we've had Jacob, who we've looked at, and we've had the nation of Israel that we've looked at. And now Jesus is our high priest under the order of Melchizedek. Abraham gave to Melchizedek, Jacob gave to Melchizedek, Israel, in a sense, they didn't give it to Melchizedek, but they gave it to uh, the, the Levi priestly order, which replaced Melchizedek while they were a nation. They are now removed, so we've got Melchizedek again. So are we, like Abraham and Jacob, to bring our offering in honour to our high priest, Melchizedek? Just put that idea before you, the idea... See, nothing changes. It flows, but the methodology changes sometimes, and, and the underlying principles always stay the same. According to Scripture, then, when we set aside our first tenth and offering our tithe to Jesus, we are acknowledging that Jesus is our high priest according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. I say a tenth because the other two use the principle of a tenth. I don't think we're bound by a tenth, but I think like they offered to the high priest who represented God, we too must bring an offering. And this offering that we have, we offer it to God, to our high priest, Christ. Anyway, you can think about those things. This is then one of the ways we obviously acknowledge Christ as our high priest in the offering that we give. In Malachi 3, 7 to 12, which you must have heard preached on many, many, many times if you've uh, heard sermons about giving or money or finances or something, God challenges 
he challenges Israel. We always got to bear this in mind. The teaching that they read about in, Mal in Malachi is to the nation of Israel. It's not to his church today. Principles carry through, but he's basically talking to the nation of Israel. God challenges Israel to test him, he says, and see if he would not bless them if they were faithful in paying their tithes. He says, I have entered into a covenant with you, and if you keep your part of the covenant, I'll keep mine. Well, of course, but he says, you're not keeping your part of the covenant, so how do you expect me to keep my part? It's, this is what covenant is all about. He goes on to say this, ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and in offerings. He's talking to the nation of Israel and he's entered into a covenant with them, the old covenant, the covenant of the law of Moses. And the covenant says, this is what I expect from you. If you give this to me, I will give this to you. That's who he's challenging. He said to withhold God's appointed portion. Remember we said that the tithe was holy and it was the Lord's. So if you kept it, you were stealing because it wasn't yours to keep. And so it was, you had to give it to him because it was his. He said, you're robbing God. Now, most of Israel, most of the men of that day would never rob a man, but they were guilty of robbing God because that tenth was God's under the Mosaic law. God then told Israel the result of robbing him and then the remedy, a little bit more of that Malachi reading. He says, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Who's under the curse? It's the nation of Israel that are under the curse. Some preachers put it that you're under a curse because you're not giving. It doesn't apply to us. It applies to the nation of Israel. If you were living under the nation of Israel, what these preachers are preaching today would be true. You would be under a curse if you were robbing God of his money. You're under a, uh, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you'll, that you'll not have room enough for it. The storehouse that he talks about here, they would tithe with the produce, the substance, uh, if it was animals, they would give, bring the animals into uh, the, to, to the priest, to the high priest and to the priest. If it was grain and offering, they would bring that. They wouldn't bring cash or money. Uh, there was no need for that. They would bring substance. So he talks in terms of storehouse that the, the, the food and the grain would all come in. And then from this, when it was necessary in different seasons, that would be given out again to the people. So there's a sense in what they, what they gave at a time of harvest and prosperity, it would come back to them. 
or if people who didn't have land and means and so forth, they would be blessed from the storehouse. It's funny, in giving to God, we give to ourselves because God doesn't retain anything or, or having anything. If you think about giving to your church, the person who's primarily blessed from when you give money to the church is you. Either the church is made more comfortable or it, it has more ministry opportunities or, or, or. So in giving, it's not going far. Churches must be very careful in that they don't spend everything they have on themselves they actually allow most of this to flow out, as it were, to spread the gospel further than just sustaining those that are there. But there is a place in scripture, because you take it to the storehouse for, it to, for you to be sustained in difficult times. We'll see next week, when we look at the grace of giving, how this whole concept of a storehouse is developed further. That's the tithes. Tithing for Israel, and it can also be applied to us if we choose. Sometimes it's easy for Christians to just think of, I will just give a tithe. It's fine. There's no problem in that. You choose to give out of the substance of what you have. It could be a tithe, which means a tenth, or if you're very prosperous, you could afford to give more. If you're not, then you, you have the ability to choose what your offering to God should be. So what it does, if we bring a certain amount of money each week and present it to God or every month or whatever, it lays a, a systematic foundation, as it were, of continually giving to God. Some people give a big lump, or they think it's a big lump, it appears to them a big lump, then they don't give anything for months. And then they'll give what appears to them a big lump. That's not the way that God says. He says, listen, if you set aside a sum and systematically give it to me, that usually ends up in a whole lot more than people who give big lumps from time to time. Now, there's no hard and fast rules, but it's, I like the idea of systematically giving. As God gives to me, I give. A bit like Jacob said, as you bless me, I'll, I'll flow it back to you. I won't let it accumulate, but I'll let it flow into the kingdom. We could consider a tithe as a tax. Hmm. A tax is not a donation, is it? <laughs> you don't give it to the government as a gift. It's an obligation to give it. And then you could think of this systematic giving, this regular giving, as the tax you want to pay for living in God's world, for living on this planet. You just appreciate everything he's providing for you, and so you, you honour him and give back to him in this way. There are other things uh, in addition to the tithe called offerings. Let me read this to you. This is a bit scary. Deuteronomy 12 and 6. He says we're to bring our burnt offerings, our sacrifices. Bring your tithes and your special gifts. Bring what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. You think, how much are we supposed to give here? Well, it seems in addition to tithes, there are six other offerings or gifts 
that we could give. He talks about burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, special gifts, vowed givings, free will offerings, and first fruit offerings. Well, there's seven of them. Surprise, surprise, that God would have seven. He seems to have seven of everything. So we have seven of these particular offerings that we're to give to him. He talks also about something called alms. It's a bit of an old-fashioned word. We'd probably say charity today. We give to charity. Can I say, if you give to charity, that's not giving to God. There's a difference. Giving to God is handing this money over to God's representative who chooses with others how that is to be spent. To give charity is to see someone who is poor and in need. It's all part of your giving, I understand that. And you give to support the poor and the needy. The Bible separates it, so, so should we. You give charity and you give offerings to God. You take it to the house of God. The plan is that God doesn't want anyone to be needy. And so if we are prosperous in that way, then we can meet those needs. Now, giving under the new covenant, if we compare it with tithing or giving offerings under the old, in a sense, should and could go far beyond what the Old Testament saints ever gave. The impression, and we'll look at this more next week, is the more generous we are, the more flows back to us so we can be more generous. That's the principle. And of course, we set it in motion. God instructs us and encourages us, and then we, we set the whole thing in motion. It says in Luke 12, 32 and 34, he said, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Then he says this scary bit that follows on. Sell your possessions, he says, and give them to the poor. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is he saying you're to sell everything and just give all your money away? No, I don't think he is saying that. He's talking about the heart always, the heart attitude. A attitude, remember, should never be to get, should always be to give, to be generous. And so that should always be the first thought in our mind. We should be in a way of saying, oh, I, I really need to hold some of this back because I have all these other commitments and I really mustn't be ridiculous about this. But it's about the heart condition, you see. He's also saying you can't have your heart in one place and your money in another. That doesn't work. Where your heart is there your money will be. If your heart's priority is God, then God has the first say on your money and you want him to be able to direct you in this way. He said, your father has given you the kingdom. You can afford to be generous. Everything that pertains to the kingdom is available to us. Jesus gives us two clear examples, doesn't he, of this freely being able to give everything. Uh, they're quite striking. There's the widow and her two small coins, and um, she's, Jesus is watching. 
and she gives everything that she has from poverty, really. And then he has this other stark story of this rich young man to him, and he's got great wealth. And he says the same to him. He didn't tell the, the elderly lady to, to give everything, but he tells the rich man, invest all that you have. You're, you're looking for a way to extend your relationship with God. I think this thing called money is standing in your way. Invest this into the kingdom. That will free you up to follow to follow me. So he sets these two examples in scripture. Two people who in their heart, one is only too willing to give, the other is reluctant to give. Jesus says about that young man, it says he loved him. Even though he went away, as it were, uh, reticent to give and to share, God's love was still extended to him. It didn't affect God's attitude towards him. There's another little verse that we can look at. It's talking about casting your bread upon the waters. It's found in Ecclesiastes 12, 1 and 2. It says, cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days you'll find it again. Give portions to seven, yes to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon your land. I often think of, um, uh, have you ever gone to feed the ducks bread? And you, you cast it all out there and you go back the next day, of course loads of other people have gone and thrown bread in the place, and all of it has got washed up. And there it is, so, so you didn't start off by chucking it right back, but you got, cast it out and then it, as though the ripples of the, the, the pond or whatever, it drove all the water to the, so it comes. But the point he's making here, he says your giving can be almost like an insurance policy. It appears that under the law, you were advised, directed, commanded. It was your duty to meet someone's needs seven times. And once you've done that, you said, that's it, I've done my law, I've done the duty, I don't have to do any more. But God said, if you've got the heart, you won't stop at seven. You would help him eight times or nine times or ten times. And he says, if you do that, if disaster comes near you, I will look after you. God is always looking at the heart. That principle has never changed from the Old to the New Testament. It's about our heart's condition. All of this stuff about money is not about the actual cash that we've got in our pockets. It's about our heart condition. Is God first? Am I generous in my heart? If I am, God will take care of everything else. It's as though in this case, he's saying, giving would be an insurance policy for you. The last little thing I want to say about giving and uh, tithing and so forth is that God keeps records. In the 80s, I remember God clearly speaking to me about uh, money and things regarding money and I remember going to a conference in the States and a very balanced sensible conference it was too and I felt the Lord say to me I want you to keep a record this was back in the 80s yeah, we're going back 40 years now I want you to keep a record of everything I give you and everything you give away and I've kept that record up to today I'm staggered at the blessing of God in my life, in our lives. 
God is so faithful and so generous. I've, I've sometimes kept a record of what would be considered a salary in ministry, and then to see my, my income from the Lord would be double that figure. It was as though the Lord knew what my need was, and it wasn't that I was doing anything apart from being generous, putting God first. I wasn't thinking how legalistically I must do this so I make sure that God opens the floodgates of heaven and blesses me and so forth. That wasn't it. It was a question of being generous and trusting the Lord and walking with him. This idea of God keeping records, um, it's in Numbers and chapter 7. Well, it would be in Numbers, wouldn't it, really, if it's about keeping, keeping figures? Because um, uh, Numbers is a very... It's all about numbers, really. It goes on and on and on and on about numbers, actually. But in chapter 7, which, which is really, it's the, it's the third longest um, chapter in the Bible. You all know what the longest chapter in the Bible is. It's Psalm 119, obviously, it wins by... And I think the second is somewhere in One Kings or something where it rambles on forever and ever. But this is, this is the third longest passage. The only thing that's strange about this passage, it repeats itself 12 times. What it does, it's, um, it's talking to the princes of the tribes. And it says, we're going to anoint the altar of God. And he says, I want every leader to bring his offering to the temple, which will be the offering from each tribe. And then we start off with the first one. And uh, uh, the one who brought the offering, it says, on the first day was Narshalon, the son of Abinadab of the tribe of Judah. Judah was first, remember? It, 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 he wasn't the firstborn son but he overtook the firstborn son because of his sin and Judah became the first, so he was always considered the first. And then it goes through a list of what uh, this leader from the tribe of Judah brought. His offering was one silver plate weighing 130 shekels and one silver sprinkling bowl weighing 70 shekels, both according to the sanctuary shekel, each filled with fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering one gold dish weighing 10 shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old for burnt offerings, one male goat for a sin offering, and two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs a year old to be sacrificed as a fellowship offering. This was the offering of Narshon, the son of Abinadab. On the second day, Nathaniel, the son of Zerah, the leader of Issachar, brought his offering. What do you think he brought? I'll tell you, he brought the same as the first tribe. And it goes on to the third and the fourth and the fifth. It goes through all the tribes and they all offer the same thing. And I, as I look at them, I think, what a waste of space, really. I mean, the Bible is such a small book when you think it tells you everything we need to know about God. You think, God, why did you waste two pages? I mean, you could have just put, you could have said, well, they all brought the same and then wrote something a bit more for us. What's he saying here? God is saying, listen, I write everything down. 
And we know this because you read through the Old Testament, you get these boring genealogies, don't you? There's about a dozen of them in the Old Testament, and they just go on and on and on. You think, you have to ask the question, what are you saying? He says, nothing gets past me. I keep records of everything. I write it all down. I know exactly. And if you ever challenge me about anything, I'll get this out and I'll show you that it was true. This is what challenged me to keep a record of what the Lord had blessed me with and what I was able to give back to the Lord. So God writes it down. God knows exactly what we've given and what we haven't given. He knows exactly. That's not to put anyone under pressure. That's just, it's important to God. It really is important. Doesn't he say, if you give even a cup of water to the least of one, I've got it written down somewhere. Whatever you do, don't worry. It's all written down. It, nothing, nothing gets past me that I don't know about. And of course, we just looked at this illustration about the widow and her mites. Isn't it interesting that Jesus did the same thing? He calls his disciples to him. He says, just stand here, because we're going to have a look at what people give as an offering to the Lord. So he was of the same mindset of God. Well, of course he was. He was God. But he says, we'll have a look at what people give to the Lord. And he, he illustrates them both, doesn't he? He illustrates the poor lady who gives just everything she's got. She's giving from her heart everything. And then he compares her to the, the wealthy who just seem to just swagger and throw their change into the box, as it were. And so he says a very interesting thing. At the end, he says, this woman gave more than all the others. Well, that's a downright lie. It, she didn't give more. She gave the least of all of them, not more than all of them. So what does it say? It says, God looks at what you retain more than what you give. This is very important because what we retain, we retain for ourselves as opposed to what we give unto the Lord. This woman kept nothing for herself, so she gave the most. That's in the economy, in the way that God works things out. Again, we see it's about the heart, you see. It's always about the heart. It always has been, and it always will be. It's not about the letter of the law. It's not about doctrine. It's about the heart condition. And so we could argue over doctrine for years, but the question is, where is your heart in all of this? That's what's fundamental to God. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.